I did a comparative analysis um, looking at and kind of analyzing the coverage of some of those publications that I read in high school, and I saw that there still wasn't much diversity. I mean, there was some sprinkled here and there, but for the most part, it was still quite whitewashed. In this digital media world, what do you do when your group or your interests are not being represented by the mainstream media? You start your own media outlet to cover those issues. I'm Michael O'Connell, and this is It's All Journalism. Joining me in studio is actually an old friend of mine, Norma Porter. She was in the interactive journalism program with me at American University. And it's great to see you again, Norma. Thanks for coming into the studio. Wow, Michael, it's so great to see you, too. It's yeah. been years, it so ha- thanks for having me. It has been years. And uh, you've, uh, you know, it's it's funny, we, we were in this program, and I think only a hand, handful of us are really kind of still, quote-unquote, journalists. A lot of us are doing other types of things, some of them digital in their careers. Now, you're at, right now, you're at Temple University. What is it you're doing? There? So, at Temple University, I do admissions and recruitment, as well as marketing and some advising for the Boyer College of Music and Dance, specifically the dance department. And I remember this from when we were in class together. You, you come from dance. That was something I, you've done for a very long time. Sure, yes. Gosh, I've been dancing since I was about four. I started out at a local studio here in what used to be the Staple Arts Center all the way down on like 8th and E Street, which is now quite a buzz in Chinatown. I started there at a studio and then I moved on to a program at the Duke Ellington School of the Arts. Um, They used to have an after school program called Tadpoles. So it was the after school program as well as a summer youth program that was a recruitment tool that they used to get students to come. So right after junior high school, I went straight to Duke Ellington where I uh, trained in ballet, modern, jazz, tap, African, you name it, I did it. (laughs) So, however, I want to say around 11th grade, I got a little burnt out. And then also as a result of, which we're going to be talking about later today, the lack of diversity in dance media coverage, I also felt like I just wasn't going to get a job dancing. Also coming from a family of people who are not artists, my parents really wanted me to get a solid college degree in an industry that they felt that I would be gainfully employed in. <laughs> so it's quite ironic that now, 20 some years later, I am convincing parents every day to let their students major in dance. So they, yeah. So no, you, you got your degree in. So now I end up getting my degree in journalism with a minor in dance at American University. Uh, then I went on and worked at uh, the Washington Informer newspaper. The community, small African American community newspaper, um, East of the River, and then started doing a little bit of teaching journalism in a couple uh, charter and private schools in the area, and then I looked into the interactive journalism program at American University, and it was funny because I like had only been out of school about a year. But I was a mom, I was a wife, and I had quite a bit of life experience. Uh, that specific program wanted us wanted applicants who were either five years or so into the field or making a career change. But I kind of fought my way into the program. So, yeah. Yeah. Just one sort of to back up. When you say east of the river, do you mean the Potomac or Anacostia? Anacostia. So yeah. the Washington Informer is located on Martin Luther King Jr. Avenue in Ward 8. Okay. So th- th- I'm just saying that because people who, who are not from D.C. may not realize that there's actually more than one river in the city. And it kind of tells you what 
part of city you're from, depending on which 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 river you're you're located near. So yeah, we we met in this program, and I know that after after we finished the program, you went in and you did some teaching, but then you also still, I mean, you wanted to apply what you had learned to, you know, creating something that that would service your love of of dancing and also your concerns about coverage of minorities in the arts. And so you you launched a magazine. Why don't you tell me about that? It's quite interesting because that the journalism entrepreneurship program or class that we were in with Steve Buttry, so crazy that he's gone. But um, we, I remember the assignment in that class was to either build a template and a business model for a news startup or to analyze an existing new journalism online startup and contact them and find out all about the business model and so forth. So I had been out of dance for a really long time and I decided that I had this goal and I had this idea that there needed to be a publication that highlighted the contributions of black dancers or dancers of color in the dance industry because I was like, there's got to be other people um, the two major black dance companies that most people know about are the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater and the Dance Theater Harlem. And so other than that, those two companies were really the only companies you saw in some of the industry publications I was required to read at Duke Ellington. And I, ha- I said, like, there's got to be more. I think the journalistic person in me felt as if there had to be other people and other young people my age in cities across the country in arts programs, in dance studios, or just self-taught dancers that were making dance and performing and their stories needed to be told. Okay. So now the classic, if you don't see something in the world, you know, create it and put it out there. So you you saw a need, you saw a gap and you were going to apply the the skills that you you had learned. So so tell me about the launching of um, Black Dance Magazine. How did that come about? I know we, we... you talked about the the original concept, you know, what what did you do? So the interesting thing is that I have a lot of my former teachers that I've gone back to teach dance for them at their studios and schools. A couple of them in the Washington, D.C. area are members of an organization called the International Association of Blacks and Dance. And that organization was founded by, founded by five women who have started five kind of, I would say, medium-sized companies in different areas in the country, black women who have created companies because during the 1950s and 60s, they couldn't get jobs as dancers due to segregation and discrimination within the arts. So they came together to start this association. Um, My instructors and former teachers being members of this organization, and I've always just kind of like had this idea sitting here. I went to one of my mentors. Her name is Carol Foster. Um, She's huge in the DC dance community and said like one I couldn't find a job (laughs) after the program Um, and uh, I said I really think like that I need to do this Um, a part of the assignment in the journalism entrepreneurship class was that I felt before I created a template and started looking at what it would be like to start a black dance magazine I did a comparative analysis Um, looking at and kind of analyzing the coverage of some of those publications that I read um, in high school. And I saw that there still wasn't much diversity. I mean, there was some sprinkled here and there, but for the most part, it was still quite whitewashed. It was funny because it was kind of like 
maybe it was like October in 2012, like kind of right after graduation that I went to her and she said, well, you know, the International Association of Blacks and Dance has an annual conference and the conference next year in January of 2013 will be here in D.C. You should come to an interest meeting for people who are helping to volunteer and host the conference here and present this idea at the meeting. So it went from an idea, but having all of the legwork and the work that I did thinking about like what sections and what type of coverage and what type of content would be in it. I already had the model built from the journalism entrepreneurship class. So I went to the meeting and met the chair of the organization and she's like, yeah, we've got to have your magazine. Let's do it. And so it was kind of like a violent push. (laughs) Maybe it was took me about two months to get everything together. I have a good friend of mine who is a book publisher and she does layout. And so the first issue kind of looks like a book. But and so we're currently working on like updating the template so that it can look a little bit more like a magazine. Um, But I just kind of was pushed out there. And it was interesting because I probably would have never done it. It was it's such a huge undertaking for one person. But I knew journalism, I knew black dance culture, and I knew dance. And and because I've gone to a arts high school, some of my friends are in the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater Company and in companies like Palabolas and so forth. I had the connections in terms of like, I knew I had the access to get the stories that I needed. So I found myself three months later at the Hyatt downtown in front of a exhibition table with a black dance magazine like banner selling magazines and um so our first ish, first year in um, 2013 we published three magazines and we had a partnership or um, content agreement with the international association of blacks and dance and so they purchased a uh, subscriptions for their members so okay. that kind of was the basis of the audience okay well cool now now you just did those three issues I did. In the process of that year, I moved to Philadelphia and I thought it would be important for me to move into a place that was centralized to black dance, as well as a little bit closer to New York, which is kind of like the nexus of the dance industry in on the East Coast. So uh, another thing was that, like, because I kind of had got pushed to do it in terms of a business model advertising, building an audience, all of that like journalistic stuff hadn't really been figured out yet. So I felt like I really needed to take a pause and figure that out. I also was really interested in finding a job in dance. Being in journalism, especially in D.C., all of the work that I did was very political, interviewing Mayor Fenty, interviewing, you know, the former chancellor of D.C. public schools, Michelle Ree, a lot of community news and city hall. I really hadn't seen much dance in a long time. I really hadn't been in the culture. So I really was interested in finding a job either in a dance company or at a university that really immersed me in the dance culture. As I also tried to figure out, like, what is the business of journalism in the 21st century, right. while, you know, advertising is being cut and we're trying to figure out new models of funding and so forth. So I landed the job at Temple in 2015. And I also joined a, uh, a board of a nonprofit dance 
journalism website is called thinkingdance.net mm-hmm. and it is an organization that covers dance in Philadelphia from the dancer's perspective. All of the writers are dancers and they're trained to like interview and so forth. So there's also an educational component as well. And so I learned a little bit about the nonprofit world. And I found that I thought that either being able to partner with other organizations in the nonprofit world, I felt that nonprofit would be the best model for me. So uh, here we are now in 2018, getting ready to relaunch in January. The International Association of Blacks and Dance is now my fiscal sponsor. So we can accept donations and we can at some point start to apply for grants using their 5013C status. Okay. So what is it? I mean, who who is this this publication for? Is it for the dancers? Is it people interested in dance, people who love dance? You know, when you're putting these things together, who's that audience? For me, I feel like the audience is, I feel like the audience, the dancers are the most important people. I find that it's more of a service and less of a product, which is something that I've grappled with quite a bit coming from a traditional journalism background, like, oh, no, I don't want to think about, like, donations. I don't want to think about money. Oh, my God. Like, I'm, I'm a part of the community that I am trying to serve. So there was an, a value proposition there that I felt like I couldn't maintain a certain level of objectivity. So I think that grappling with that, grappling with going nonprofit, all of those things were the reason why I've taken so long to kind of get back into the work. But I see the audience as the dancers, lovers of dance. So there may be, uh, I think it's really important for people to, um, it's important for people who write about dance to be dancers. I think the con- the context is really important. They are, they're influencing box office sales They may be influencing uh, funding opportunities and so forth. They're really influencing public opinion about the dancers and the different companies that are out here trying to create work. So I find that dancers, uh, dance students in collegiate programs, dance students in dance studios and arts high schools like Duke Ellington, definitely supporters of dance. I think people really don't understand some of the psychological battles that dancers deal with. So one of the issue, one of the uh, sections in the magazine is called Body Basics, and it's going to focus on self-care and nutrition and wellness. But then also I think it's important for like parents to know that like students are really grappling with issues around body confidence. There um, is a, a heavy dose of competition, sometimes intimidation within the dance world. Black Swan was a little bit of an exaggeration, <laughs> but like there is some truth to that. <laughs> but there is some truth to the dynamic around what it means to be a dancer and how your body is your instrument and you can be picked apart and you can have, uh, sometimes be required to push your body to unhealthy limits and so forth. And so I think it's important for, you know, parents of dancers to read the publication, parents of dancers to possibly write and contribute so that they can understand. One of the things that I dealt with a lot was issues around my body, as well as when it's unfortunate, but we still live in a society where dancers really, their training is still quite segregated because we still are quite living in a segregated world in terms of housing. Students usually train in their communities. So it wasn't until I was 16 years old and I went to the Maryland Youth Ballet, which was in Bethesda, it's now in Silver Spring, Maryland, but 
I went there and I was the only black girl in the summer program. And like not a lot of the students like talked to me and like some of the instructors didn't look at me. So there is this case of the invisibility of the black dancer, how, you know, because we don't have the same body type or we may be a little bit thicker or sometimes even more muscular in our bodies, we are, it's said that black people can't do ballet. So um, that was something that, I experienced and it was something that I didn't tell my mom about and I didn't think to tell her because I just thought that that was how it was. My teachers at Duke Ellington, you know, said, you know, if you are dancing with a white girl, you know, there's this idea that African-Americans and other, you know, cultural groups have to be exceptional. It's the Except, right. you know, you and have so, to be so much better than than the, the white performer. Exactly. That, so like if if the girl does a double turn, you have to do a triple. And, you know, and so growing up and being trained in black dance by black dance teachers who experienced racism on a daily basis during their careers, it was really already kind of ingrained in me. So I just thought that that was how it was. But uh, Dance USA, which is a service organization for dancers, they have an annual conference. And in like 2013, they have their conference in Philadelphia and um, their their conference. The main theme was about inclusivity and diversity. And like if you're going to give diversity scholarships, then you have to change the culture of the organization. And it has to start at the top with the artistic directors, with the outreach coordinators. It has to start with sensitivity training with the students, um, because oftentimes and we uh, experience it sometimes when I'm in other dance, you know, spaces that sometimes dancers are used to only dancing in hegemonic spaces. So they're it's not until they get to college or until they get to a summer intensive program where they're dancing with people of other races and ethnicities. And it can be quite uncomfortable if they're not exposed to different cultures on a daily basis. So some of our, bi- our biases, some of our um, the stereotypes come into those spaces, and like we need to talk about it and we need to deal. We need to deal with that because it definitely can impact a student's performance, a student's self esteem. So these are all things. I mean, I'm definitely interested in. I don't feel as though I want to write as many reviews as I want to highlight dancers. Do more informational articles, highlight funding opportunities, like people don't know how to get their work funded. You know, what type of uh, business models? What are the, at some point, and it's funny because like I've gone into nonprofit, although arts nonprofit funding is cut and all of the stuff around NEA, but you know, there are so many other models, like how can dancers be digital? How do you have a digital footprint in dance? And how do you build those that skill set to be able to market yourself in a competitive industry? So these are all things that I think are really important. I want to use the magazine to empower black dancers to shine a light on what it is that they're doing and to also just show people that are lovers of dance that there's so much that goes into it before the dancers hit the stage. Yeah. You know, you say, say so many things that, that that are so fascinating to think about because, I mean, one, you have people who are choosing to, you know, live a life in the arts, which is a challenge for anybody that, you know, how do I survive? How do I advance? You know, how can I c- compete? And then, then the, uh, the concept that your body is, is your instrument and the fact that your, you know, your instrument is constantly being judged and, 
you know, for your performance, but also the way you appear. And, you know, what does that do to your self-esteem? And then add on top of it, you know, the level of uh, racism or the perception of how people of color are. I mean, your skin is also something being that's judged as well. And this is all mixed in with the, the arts and the self-esteem. And, and then you bring in body issues that, you know, I would imagine you probably also talk about nutrition and health uh, because, of, you know, that's that's something I understand is. Yeah, is I mean, even like eating disorders, eating right. disorders are prominent amongst dancers, regardless of race, socioeconomic status, location, because the body changes. But under in dance, like it's supposed to remain a certain height, a certain weight, a certain, um, you know, these really like idealistic standards that I feel like dance has has uh, adopted, I mean, I definitely feel like it's getting better, but the enormous amount of pressure that students very early on in life, some studios weigh their dancers. You know, I mean, like, come on. Like, Newsrooms should start weighing their reporters, <laughs> I think. Uh, oh, no one would come to work. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, these are very real things that people deal with. And then you're supposed to get on stage and smile and perform. And also, it's the illusion that, like, this stuff doesn't hurt. You know, right. I've lost toenails on point shoes before, you know, or like your toes bleed or you get blisters and like you're supposed to do this. Very, very, very difficult stuff while like negotiating all of these like very these cultural norms and dance and then also look like unbothered and like not like not breathing heavy. You're just supposed to, you know, your makeup is supposed to be perfect. And, you know, it's it's a lot. And um, I think for me, it was too much. Yeah, it was too much. And I felt like the pressure associated with it was something that I wasn't interested in dealing with for my entire life. Like that wasn't yeah. something I wanted to move into during adulthood. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because you, you know, you hear these, these similar stories in the fashion industry about body image and the perception of, you know, what models are and how clothes are, are designed. You know, I think maybe you, you answer this, but one of the things I wanted to ask you was, with your own life, you know, when did when did you sort of begin thinking of yourself as a black dancer? I mean, you grew up in a black community, but you started out as a little girl, you know, in a class of, of other black children. You know, when did that sort of become an issue or, uh, you know, the way that you sort of self-identified, I guess? So it's funny. I remember in a sociology class in undergrad, my professor gave me and uh, they gave us a assignment where we had to pick something that we had been socialized about as a child and like go back to your parents and try to figure out like, how did you, how were you socialized around this? And I think I've just always been, because I'm a very visual person in terms of like, I can remember people I have photogenic memory. I think as a little kid, I was like obsessed with like color and race in terms of like, okay, so like your skin, Michael is different from my skin. Hmm, that's different, you know, and so not in a bad way, but I remember I went to an all black daycare and my first year in kindergarten, I had a white teacher and I really hadn't, I mean, you know, you go to daycare, you go home, you go to daycare, you go home. There wasn't many white people around unless like I went to like work with my parents every once in a while or something like that. And so when I got to school, my teacher was white and I came home and was like, mom, how come I don't have a brown teacher? And my mom was like, 
what? You know, like she said, she didn't really know how to answer that question. And she said, well, you know, you had a brown teacher at in daycare, you know, but like, and maybe you have a brown teacher again, but like Miss Johnson is great. And like, I think it's going to be good. I just kind of being like five. I was like, oh, okay. And then I'll never forget in third grade, I had a teacher. Her name was Miss Spate. And like, we're still in contact with each other. And she went to Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia. And she like wore braids and wore like African like wrap skirts. And like, I think that that was like the first time that I had ever like someone in an educational setting. And I really liked school that I felt like I identify with. And so like Miss Spate and I became like, I came like her little mentee and she would like she took me to Georgetown for the first time and like we used to hang out. And then I want to say probably at about 10 or 11 um, took me to see the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. And they uh, my birthday's in February and they, they come to the Kennedy Center every February. So that was always like my birthday present. We would get dressed up and go to the Kennedy Center. And the first time that I saw Revelations, which is a ballet choreographed by Alvin Ailey that is to Negro spirituals. And it's like one of the famous, you know, dances in their repertoire. And it really just like songs like Wade in the Water and very like songs that really speak to periods of enslavement, period of like just overcoming things racially as African-Americans. And I've always loved history. I've always wanted to know, like, well, how come, like, this is Newark Street? Like, what is that? Like, where does that come? Oh, Newark, Newark. There's a Newark, New Jersey. Oh, there's a Newark, Delaware. I don't know. Like, and I then I found journalism. And I was like, oh, you know, like, there's a job where you can just ask all the questions and not get on people's nerves. So I uh, like to say seeing Revelations training in Black dance spaces with Black teachers who danced in the company who oftentimes we would have um, most companies they do some sort of outreach when they go to a city so we would have master classes so da- Alvin Ailey dancers would come to do Gellington and do master classes and like I found that the combination of the themes of black culture and even sometimes using the using infusing like modern dance or ballet with black social dances that like I grew up doing like you know the electric slide or something like that it just spoke to me and I didn't but like prior to and then I realized in at Duke Ellington we had a like a dance history class like I realized that like there was something like that was called black dance and that comes from Pearl Premise and Catherine Dunham and they come that comes from a tradition of you know Black dancers, both Catherine Dunham and Pearl Premise, were anthropologists. So they went to countries in Africa and in the Caribbean and like studied the dances of the indigenous people there and brought it back to the States and then put it on stage as a set it as performance. So I just was like, how did we get here? And then so in that specific dance history class is where I learned like, okay, so ballet history is European. But, like, in modern dance is both European and American. But, like, this thing that I do here every day is called black dance. You know, I think having a magazine like this where you're you're telling the, the dancer's perspective that I think is, is really powerful. And what you've described is it's clear that there are a lot of stories out there to, to be told. And, and 
you know, just offering the insight, you know, having the dancers tell their stories or, or be interviewed for or write their own stories. I, I think that's a, sort of a powerful, you know, method of, of examining these these issues, the things that you don't really think about. You know, all I care about is I love this dance company. I go to the shows and, you know, the only thing I care about is what's on the stage. I don't I'm not necessarily thinking of these these instruments that are human beings and, and the challenges that they have to face. I mean, you could do a YouTube magazine about dancing. This is specifically Black Dance Magazine, which which says, you know, you want to tell that story as well. You know, how important is it to to talk about people of color in the arts? I think that it's really important because, like I said, a lot I've learned over the course of the last couple of years, just kind of being back in the dance dance spaces um, in a professional level that in order for like say a company owner someone that started a company and they want to get booked at the Joyce which is like the premier dance theater in New York there are a lot there's a lot you just can't go to the Joyce and say present my work you know you have to be reviewed you know it's the same thing if the tree falls in the forest and no one's there to listen to it fall. Does it make a sound? So what's happening is that black people in dance, either they're uh, they're creating their own dance, maybe they are in dance companies that are predominantly white and feeling like they are experiencing issues of racism and discrimination, but they don't have a voice. If it's a dance or someone that's trying to start a company and they want to get a grant, well, Oftentimes, you know, you can submit a video, but like that's very subjective. What about an authoritative opinion on your dancing? And so you you need to get the press to come and show up. But if you're competing with the Pennsylvania Ballet or if your dance is has a socio political message that may not necessarily be most popular to general media, then how do you get your work covered? How do you get how do you get those opportunities and get your work documented to say that it's been done and to have a independent person say whether or not it's good or not or complex or would it whether or not it meets the standards for a particular grant. That's really important and sometimes that can be a determining factor from someone moving on in dance and succeeding or giving up and getting a nine to five and being extremely unhappy and not being able to live out their purpose. So you're relaunching the magazine and you, you talked about how you're having sponsorships to it, but you're also, you've got a GoFundMe going. Absolutely. Yes. So, which has taken me totally out of my comfort zone as a traditional <laughs> journalist. You, I'm like, you're, I'm, you're putting the cup out. Please, please exactly. Give me I'm like, please, you know, so one of the things that I had to, kind of really come to terms with as a single mom, kind of right after we graduated, I went through a divorce, was that I could no longer continue to self-fund. Another thing is that it's interesting, we haven't published anything or been really active on social media in a while. And the page, our page currently has about 1,500 people, close to 1,600. And so somehow the news is spreading that there there is an audience and a need for it. And it's not just black people. It's all people of all different races and, you know, and um, ethnicities. So I am relaunching. I've been approached by the International Association of Black 
and dance again to kind of pick up where we left off in 2013. And I really had to say, like, I think I can get some grant money. There's, you know, diversity in journalism. There's even um, the Doris Duke Foundation and a couple foundations are now starting to fund what they're calling, like, engaging unique or diverse audiences. And so I'm definitely looking at, like, funding in terms of how can I either partner with other companies to help document their work, but also publish stories that could be informational information for other, you know, dancers. And so the GoFundMe right now, our website is, it needs to be redesigned for it to be a digital magazine. So we started out as print um, and I never really wanted to let print go, but we just weren't able to sell subscriptions, print subscriptions in the way in which like we weren't selling print subscriptions, but our digital audience on Facebook continues to grow. So I said, okay, we have to, you know, meet the people where they are. So I'm redesigning the website. I'm currently looking at a couple different online publishing tools like uh, Issue or Flipsnack. And so I'm like kind of working with my web designer uh, to get that up and running. But I said, I know like so many people, other family members and people in my community, dancers that I know are like, what's up? Like, what's going on? So, you know, so I said, well, I think I can do like a GoFundMe and we can get the website up and running. I'm also going to be doing sponsorship packets. So the great thing is that at Temple, I like next week, I'll be in San Diego at the National Dance Education organizations conference so i've been working with them for the last couple of years so i'm like hey guys don't you guys want to be a sponsor for the magazine i think right now diversity is a hot button issue and diversity in the arts has and the politics of access to quality arts programs and so forth is really beginning to take center stage so i definitely think that companies and organizations will invest in the magazine or sponsor the magazine in hopes to draw some of our readership and our audience into the programs that they have. You know, I think it's, it's so I remember like a couple years ago, I got a message on Facebook from someone saying that black dance magazine was divisive and just because it was black dance. Right. So, you know, and even within the field of dance, there are debates about like, what is black dance? Like, how do you define black dance? Like, is it black people dancing? Is it, people of any nationality or race dancing choreography by a black person? Is it to black music? Is it, is some, it some type of theme or right. something? Right. And yeah. I mean, like uh, the, the, the term black dance really came from the black arts movement in New York. And, you know, around that time, a lot of people were creating work that really reflected the experience of the African-American experience and, you know, delving into issues of, fair housing and politics. And um, so I think that it's all of that. For me, it's Ashley Murphy. She used to be at uh, in the Dance Theater of Harlem. She is um, a soloist now at the Washington Ballet, right? Like not far from here. Like what's it like for her? How does she get to where she is? What type of obstacles did she have, racial or non-racial? And like, I think it's important to tell her story because there might be some black girl at a dance school that wants to be her, but doesn't even know that she exists. So yeah, so we're doing a GoFundMe and trying to raise $2,500. So I do have my cup out. (laughs) Uh, We have 405 of that raised and we're looking to raise it by the end of October. Okay. 
So, yeah, we'll definitely have a link in the story on our website about the gun GoFundMe, and I encourage people to, to do it because clearly, as you sort of outlined it, I think this is a, this is a great resource for you know, black dancers, but dance in, in general, this idea of telling these stories. And, you know, you're, you're obviously, you're someone who, whose life was enriched by dance. I mean, clearly. And anything that you can do to encourage people to support the arts, to people to get involved in the arts, to support, you know, young people starting out, you know, living lives where they have arts, you know, arts and expression as part of their life. I mean, it's an enriching experience. So anyway, Norma, it's great to see you. Thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, it's great to see you, Michael. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about journalism. Actually, I'm going to take a few minutes to sort of talk about an issue that that I've been sort of tossing around in my head. For many years, we start out our podcast with the phrase, Welcome to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. And uh, that was kind of a phrase that one of our founding producers, Megan Clorty, had come up with as a way to sort of encapsulate what our mission is. And our mission really hasn't kind of changed, but I think the perception of what journalism is at the moment has kind of shifted. Back then, our focus was we were going to cover news events and uh, issues around the change in technology that was going on that was moving uh, newsrooms away from print into the digital field and, and what challenges that created. And that's still part of what our mission is. We're all trying to learn these new skills so that we can better report the news. But as the podcast has sort of developed, its focus is, has broadened. And I think we've more embraced the idea of what our title is, It's All Journalism that all of what we're doing here, all of these different things that look odd are actually different facets of journalism. And sometimes we will do a podcast about an editorial cartoonist or we'll do a podcast about data analytics. And so that's all under the big umbrella. So just because I, I'm one of those people who likes to make sure that the language you use reflects kind of what we're doing, I've been sort of questioning the idea, do we really need to keep saying the changing state of digital news, when in actuality, this is all changing. This is all news. Why why limit it to our focus to digital? That's just me probably worrying too much. But I'd love to hear if you have any thoughts on that. What I've been doing the last uh, month or so is, you know, thinking about when I do these these intros for the podcast, that I actually say, you know, welcome to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about journalism issues, about media, about people who create good journalism. And I think I haven't landed on anything in particular, but I'd love to hear if you have any ideas. If you do, then drop me an email at editor at It's All Journalism, and, uh, or you can leave a comment on uh, our website, itsalljournalism.com, or on our Twitter account, at All Journalism, or even on our Facebook page. So, But we'd love to hear from you. It takes a lot of people to put together an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco edited this podcast. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Nick Hunter helped us with the website. Anamia Brust helped us with our booking. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. If you'd like to find out more about our podcast, why not sign up for our weekly email newsletter? Go to itsalljournalism.com. 
and follow the link at the top of the page to subscribe. You'll get a weekly newsletter that uh, talks about the latest episode, uh, talks about future episodes. Uh, There's usually an editorial or something that I write or a blog post and uh, some links to some interesting journalism-based stories. So check it out at itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The What's Working in Washington podcast with your host, Jonathan Aberman. We share this region's innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative spirit. This podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the D.C. region. It illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy, bureaucratic, politics-only reputation it tries to shed. The What's Working in Washington podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast D.C. The Target USA podcast with your host, J.J. Green. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. That could touch the whole of the United States. ISIS. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to see an attack. This is J.J. Green. Join me each week for the latest on U.S. and international security on Target USA. The Target USA podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC.